Exodus chapter 23 and verse 14. Every week's an important message, you know, but I think folks really, really try and use your spirit this morning and not your brain because these things are getting so important in the days in which we live. Um, We're doing a series on Israel and by studying Israel, I think we understand the days and the times in which we live. We understand our Bibles. We understand ourselves. And it's just absolutely critical. I'll wait until we've got the last of our notes there. Now, okay, everybody look up. Last week, we began by reading what Jesus said at the Last Supper. What did he say? Do this. Do what? Do this. Jesus said before he left the earth that when we come to remember him, he doesn't want us to set up a Christmas tree. He doesn't want us to have Easter eggs because they were child sacrifice. He said specifically, he said deliberately as a warning because he knew what was coming. What did he say? Do this. I want you to say that again and again until you get it. He said, there's going to be a feast. There's going to be a practice that I want you to have. And that practice was Passover, or at least celebrated principally annually at Passover and then continually through the breaking of bread and communion. So Jesus gave us a pattern, but my oh my, every good thing that God seeks to get to us, every good practice that God has sought to establish in our lives, the devil has put in a counterfeit And I must say, the devil has done a very, very good job of that. I arrived on Friday night to speak to the Eritreans, and before I could speak, some of the leaders said, Pastor Mike, we want you to do the Passover offering again. And I said, that's exactly what I've got. And that's exactly what I'd already planned to to bring here, even though we've done it again. And I thank God the Eritreans were very sharp there, very astute. Because we understand Israel differently, and I trust you do, we can revisit this, and I hope that it opens your mind and opens your eyes to things that you have not yet seen concerning this principal element of our Christian lives, because I think it's a huge key if we can but get it. Exodus 23, verse 14, three times a year, you, that's you. It's not the Jews. It's not Israel. That's you, okay? Well, it's the, it is Israel, and it's the whole of those people who call themselves believers or who follow God, not just limited to the Jews. Three times a year, you shall keep a feast unto me, right? God set apart basically three times a year where his people in all generations were to come before him. Do we do that? No. Those things have slipped away, and these are not actually Jewish feasts. They're not Christian feasts. These are what we would call God's feasts. And failure to keep these things brings defeat into our lives. Everybody listen. 
Have you got defeat in your life? Are you growing spiritually? Because pass it, there's two Jewish New Year's, by the way, two every year. One is a secular New Year, and the other one is the beginning of all things spiritual, the beginning of spiritual growth. That's Passover. Two different beginnings. And in eight weeks' time, we have the next Passover. So if you are wanting to grow spiritually, this is the landmark. This is the moment, but we must approach it correctly. We've been constantly reminding you how in the last days, the Bible will open up to us, right? Revelation is going to come. It's going to start pouring down, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 30 last week. In the last days, you will understand these things. Israel was going to be hidden. It was called by Paul a mystery. So for generations, and I told you, come to my house, and I'll show you a load of books by people who lived prior to 1948. And when they're interpreting Scripture, they really don't know what they're talking about in terms of end times because there was no Israel. But in the last days, in these days, suddenly it will open up. And so modern books, modern teachings are very important for you to catch up with the revelation. Now, there are some books that are much more significant than others. Part of that revelation was a book by Stephen Munsey, it was released about 10 years ago, and that book was called The Seven Blessings of Passover. And God showed him something of, of great, great significance, not just Passover. He also taught about many other feasts, but specifically how the devil had sought to disable the church by taking the do this, by taking the Passover away and replacing it with many other things, even though God had stipulated this was going to be an everlasting thing. Okay? Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. Look at this. I'm going to give you quite a few scriptures today because we need them. Exodus 12, 14. It's talking about Passover. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Not your feast, not a Jewish feast. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by ordinance. And what's the last word? Forever. In Hebrew, the word is forever. Okay? In other words, this is something that you will see in heaven when you get there. It's something that will never end. It's a remembrance, actually, of the sacrifice that Jesus pay paid for us on the cross, basically. That's something that will never end and we will never forget. Now, first question this morning. How do we celebrate Passover? How does God say that He wants us to celebrate Passover? Someone shout it out with an offering, and by all means a sacrifice, by bringing in an offering like no other offering of the year. It's not your faith pledge. It's a different thing, okay? It's not your tithe. That's a different thing. Not your free will offerings, not so much your sacrificial offerings. It, it, it's bringing onto God the greatest sacrifice of your entire year. Now, you've heard me mention many times, Constantine. Constantine was an emperor, and in 325, he changed many things in the Christian church. That's why we have Christmas when we do. That's why Easter, Easter was established and Passover was disestablished. Constantine did away with Passover. He took it out of the church. 
and he replaced it with Easter, okay? And this is not just Constantine, but for generations before that, the devil had sought, God says, this is what I want you to do, and the devil puts different feasts and different celebrations to cloud our actual connection to power with God. And yet, a couple of times over the last five years, we've looked at this. The way it goes is this, folks, nice and simple. God says to you, here and now today, if you come before me at Passover, which is eight weeks away, and you bring to me your best offering, then in the book of Exodus, he lists seven promises that he will do for his part. But you, you know when you visit a king in any country on this earth, what do you do? You bring the best gift that your nation can bring. Now tell me, is it any different with God? It is no different with God. It is critical that we understand how He works, and He knows you better than you know yourself, okay? And it is an offering. If you haven't got money, you can bring other things, like in Bulgaria. When we're in Bulgaria, some of the farmers that come to the church, you know, they got no money, so they bring carrots and cabbages and potatoes. But whatever it is, it needs to be the best thing you bring. I'll come back to that in a moment. There are seven promises for the coming year, from 2013, March, all the way through to 2014, March, that God says, for that year, I will commit, Kahiso, you bring in an offering, and this is what God says to you. Number one, I will assign an angel to watch over your life. Amazing promise, awesome promise. Take a look at it. Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5, and verse 10. This is amazing stuff. Joshua 5, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. You can just read that and read on and not realize the huge significance of it. But folks, again, sorry, just look up. Please, let, you can't afford to miss it. Do you know Moses... Moses was such a good guy, but he didn't end well, did he? Did Moses enter the promised land? No. Imagine going all the way through your life and being so patient with the Hebrew people and then not actually receiving the victory at the end of it all. But that's what happened Moses. What was the big mistake that Moses made, not apart from striking the rock? What was the mistake? He didn't celebrate Passover. Did Moses get victory? No. Wilderness, wilderness, all the days of his life. And Moses, just before this verse, by the way, Moses dies. Now his deputy, who was that? This is Joshua. Moses is just dead. What's the first thing Joshua says? On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites, for the first time, in 40 years, celebrated Passover. And I can only imagine that Joshua must have been tapping Moses on the shoulder and saying, Moses, why don't you do what the Lord has commanded? The Bible doesn't tell us why. Whether he, Moses was afraid of civil war amongst his people, I don't know. We don't know. 
But we do know this, as Moses did not see victory, he saw 40 years of defeat. And as soon as he died and, and Joshua got the reins, Joshua, I know what's missing. Joshua celebrates Passover. What comes next? Straight into Canaan. Straight into victory. Actually, take a look at it. Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10. You can see what happened. Sorry, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Joshua 5, verse 13. He's just celebrated Passover. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man. Here comes the angel. Joshua just brought in his offering, if you like. He celebrated Passover. He looked up and there's that angel straight off the bat. God has honored his promise. And you'll see that repeatedly as you look through Scripture again and again and again and again and again that God assigns an angel to those who keep that commitment that he calls us to, to bring in an offering at Passover. And just out of interest, anybody here seen an angel? Woo! Whoa! That's not good. <laughs> I've seen an angel. My wife, Jeanette, I got a brownie point there. <laughs> I've seen an angel. It was at a time when we were absolutely tortured. I had five churches, I think, at the time, and we had a lot of trouble. And I was lying in bed at night, one night in Dublin. I remember it was a dark night, and I was lying there, and I was praying to God, God, help us with the churches, help us to move forward. And I was, you know, Paul says he, he groans and moans and utterings, you know, deep within your spirit. It was one of those moments when your gut, your spirit is turning over like a washing machine to see what way to pray because you can kill people, you know. How am I going to pray, Lord? What do I do to protect these churches? And in that instant, just a fleeting second, it's like the heavens opened and I saw an angel. I saw an awesome angel, a huge, huge, huge angel standing there. It was just a fleeting glimpse, but I knew what I saw. And if I could put it in, in, in size, well, I couldn't put it in size. I couldn't get small enough to, to explain how big that thing was. It was actually an angel in full armor. I believe it was Michael, because he is the warrior angel. And I think God was saying to me, listen, I'm on your, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. I, take a look at this guy, you know. You, you, know you, you, you actually haven't got any problems. Remember when Elijah was with his servant? And Elijah said, God, would you open his eyes so that he could actually see what exists in the heavenly realms? And that's what God did to me that night. See, folks, it is not worth disobeying these simple truths or simple commands. Don't talk yourself out of it. Don't get so suspicious. Another message about offerings. Another, don't get so suspicious that you stay with your offerings small all your life. Amen. Don't get so suspicious. Don't get so negative or, or you know, twirly-whirly in your thinking here. I like to just look at the Scripture and believe what I say. God doesn't have to explain anything to me. Don't need to understand it. I just need to obey it, and so do you. God will release an angel to watch over our lives, Jeanette, for the coming year, beginning at Passover, which is eight weeks away. So that means you and I have got eight weeks to gather together 
the best offering that we can do. Not our faith pledge. That's about us. This is not about us. Not about the Jews. Not about Christianity. This is about God. It's a completely different thing. The faith offering is about me. It's about me growing my faith. It's about spiritual exercise. This is a different discipline. And I need all, I need the whole package to be healthy. Just like you need your fruit and veg, just like you need your proteins, you need a whole package to lead a healthy, wholesome, proper Christian life. Amen. And this is a critical key element. Isn't it funny the devil didn't so much attack the tithe? He attacked the Passover offering. If I can get that Passover offering off them, just like I got it off Moses, they will just wander maybe all their lives. Maybe their entire Christian lives will be a merry-go-round without the spiritual breakthroughs that they see happening around them. Maybe they will get stuck and they will not obey their God or listen to their God. And this is what we see happening. Promise number two is in Judges chapter 6. Take a look at this. Judges chapter 6 and verse 17. It's the story of Gideon when he is in the wine press and the Lord appears to him. The promise is that God will destroy your enemies. Gideon replied, if I have now... Judges chapter 6 verse 17. Gideon replied, if I have now found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking with me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Now, this is Gideon. The Lord appears to him. It's actually Passover time. And what's the first thing Gideon says? I need, if the Lord has appeared to me, the very first thing I need to do is to go and get an offering and bring it before the Lord. In fact, if you read on there, it says that he goes and he gets a barley loaf and he brings that barley loaf and he presents it before the Lord. And if you look actually in Judges chapter 7, you will see the outcome. The second promise is that God will destroy your enemies. Well, Gideon had plenty of enemies. Anybody here got some enemies? Don't look around, please. Thank you. Gideon, uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. No, I'll stop there. there was, I heard a pastor preaching on that very passage once. And he was ridiculing it. He was mocking it. And this is what he was saying. Ha! Huh. Somebody has a dream that there's an army and a loaf of bread comes down and destroys the army. And this crazy guy says, oh, that means Gideon's going to have victory. How on earth can you get an interpretation like that from a loaf of bread? And the pastor was very mocking, right? We always mock the things we don't understand or the things that we can't compete with. Someone in your life you can't compete with? Careful. You'll find that that's where mocking and derisory, derogatory comments come in. When we hit competition. But that pastor was so severely wrong. Why did the dream have a barley loaf? No. 
What did Gideon bring as an offering? A barley loaf. And God, want, God was just about to destroy the enemy. But God wanted Gideon to know this. Yo, remember the bread? Remember the offering? That's what I'm going to use. It was a dream. It was a picture. He needed to see it in order to connect the victory he was about to get to what? His Passover offering. Right? And so it will be with you. Enemies, we can have enemies in multiple fronts and in multiple ways, folks. And God will delight to destroy them. But we need to obey these very basic, very simple principles. Gordon mentioned sacrifice at the beginning, and I completely agree. Some things in life, Ben was praying on Friday night about increasing the presence of God in our lives. And I've told you many times, it doesn't matter, because some things the penny just doesn't drop. Sometimes you need to hear things a thousand times, and then bang, you got it. The anointing and the presence of God are two different things, right? Right? The anointing is what remains within you, never taken away. Okay? It doesn't depend upon sacrifice. The anointing is that which is in me. It will always operate. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. It will work no matter what. I don't need to sacrifice anything for my anointing to flow this morning and minister to you. It doesn't work like that. So don't ever be fooled by giftings. But the presence of God, now that's different. Where does the presence, how does the presence of God come in amongst us? Your word, Gordon, only sacrifice. And so when you, because we visit a lot of churches, and it's very easy, as soon as you walk in the door, you can pretty much put your thermometer there and you can tell the level of sacrifice that's going on in that life, because you can, in that church, because you feel the presence of God. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the presence of God. The less the sacrifice, the less the presence of God. And so it is with your life. There is no easy way. Sacrifice for you, friends, concerns three things. Time, talent, and treasure. What do you do with your time? What do you do with your talents? Have you owned your talents and are you putting them into God's kingdom for use? And what do we do with our treasure? We want to increase the presence, right? Well, there ain't no other way. Those three things, those three areas of my life, my time, Monday to Friday, what am I doing? My time, day off Saturday, what am I doing? And look at sacrificial behavior towards those three things, that commitment in us. So number one, he will release an angel. Number two, he will destroy your enemies whatever way they are, whatever way they come at you. Number three, he will prosper you. Exodus chapter 23, verse 25. Exodus 23, 25. Worship the Lord your God. This is the same narrative that's talking about the blessings for those who celebrate Passover with an offering. Exodus 23, 25. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and on your water. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but God basically says that you bring in the offering and he will bless what's left. It's actually funny the way we think about it. You know, God doesn't really bless your tithe, you know. Your tithe is not the bit that gets blessed. It's because it's you've lost that. You've given that. It's gone. What does God bless? The 90%. Okay? God blesses the bit that's rest that's left. Jesus was cursed, right, upon the cross. 
Who gets blessed? The world. So the tithe is that which dies. The tithe is that which goes. And the blessing of God comes on the rest, like Jesus with Peter. Peter couldn't get his miracle, remember? Praying over the bread, the loaves and fishes, the 5,000. He couldn't do it. And he brought the bread to Jesus. What was the first thing Jesus did? Broke it, took the tithe, took that away, and gave Peter back. What happened to rest? Multiplied. And so it will be with you. God will prosper us. I don't, there's no problem with God and prosperity. But you need to understand the mechanisms, if you like, how this works. My brother is a Catholic priest. He's in the Vatican, as you know. He's a very nice guy. But he did something that I think is incredibly foolish many years ago. Constantine again. Sorry, folks, but it was. He's a Catholic priest, and all Catholic priests have to take three vows. What are they? Poverty, chastity, and obedience. And my brother, like, any, like every Catholic priest, had to go and prostrate himself before the bishops lie on the floor. Uh, and then he had to stand up and he had to read his script, making a vow of poverty. Well, I tell you what, folks, don't ever make a vow of poverty. Talk about, telling, talk about giving God's word or throwing God's word back in his face. What a terrible vow to make. What an awful thing to say to God. Chastity. In the book of Jude, isn't it? It calls a vow to chastity doctrines of demons. You're not called to chastity, right? And obedience to the Catholic Church. You know, that's the definition, actually. I'm not, not taking pot shots at the Catholic Church because I came from the Catholic Church, but the definition of a Catholic is someone who obeys the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. The definition of a Christian obey the teachings of Jesus. These are actually very different things. And I think, my, I think it was very foolish. You don't need to take a vow of poverty because that's not what Christianity was about. Remember what we said last week. Abraham was the most wealthy guy in the land, right? So was Isaac because God had prospered them. Fourth promise, that he will remove sickness. God help us. We could do with this one, couldn't we? <laughs> There's a fair bit of sickness around. Let me find that scripture. This is excellent. Two, two Chronicles. Look at this. Two Chronicles, chapter 30 and verse 1. We all know this story so well. Hezekiah becomes king. Two Chronicles, chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah becomes king, and Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And what? celebrate Passover. Here we go again. Uh, the kings had disestablished it. They end up getting dispossessed. They lose their blessing. God is not with them. A new king steps in, and he knows what the problem is. And he goes straight back to Passover, and he wants it reestablished. Now, if you turn to 2 Kings, actually, you will see the outcome of this. 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 3. 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 3. Many years later, Hezekiah gets struck down with a sickness, and he's going to die. In fact, Isaiah the prophet, who was his pastor, comes to visit him at home, and he says, get your house in order, Hezekiah, because in three days' time you're going to die. And can you imagine someone speaking that over your life? Can you imagine that sort of thing? You know, someone gives you a death sentence like that? 
Answer me this, folks. Everybody listen very carefully. Answer me this. What would you pray? What would be your prayer? Do you know what Hezekiah's prayer was? 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 3. Remember, Lord, how I have walked faithfully and wholeheartedly with, with, with wholehearted devotion and have not done what, uh, what is wrong in your eyes. In other words, Hezekiah did what? He reestablished the Passover offering. And I think that is a cracker because you need to learn to plead your case. Do you know, I don't think you would believe it. <laughs> if you could eavesdrop on our prayer time, I don't, believe, I don't think you would believe some of the prayers we pray. I don't think you would understand them. Because they're beyond your ken. But see, Hezekiah knew. He, a prophet comes and says, three days and you're going to die. But Hezekiah knew God, knew his ways, and he knew where his hope would be. Where was it? He kept the Passover. So Hezekiah turns to God and he says, God, you're a righteous God, a holy God. And I know how to plead my own case. Yes, I'm going to die. Naturally, that's what's going to happen because he made a big mistake just before that. But he says this, remember now, O God, this one thing. I kept the Passover where others left it. I kept it. And if you read on, do you know what it says? Isaiah the prophet was leaving the temple when God stopped him and said, go back to Hezekiah and tell him he's going to live. Wow. An immediate response from God. No hesitation when Hezekiah pleaded his case. Can you plead your case? In this coming year, you need to have some basis on which to plead that case. You need to have something to, to go to God with, like Abraham did actually as well, right? And the Passover offering gives us this. It gives us trade, truck with God. I shared with you before, I was in Cardiff and I got a phone call saying that my father was taken into intensive care, that it was unlikely that I was going to make it back before he died. And they were just telling me, well, I panicked and I jumped on a plane. I flew from Cardiff to Belfast. I got off. I got straight in a taxi, went straight to the hospital. And there he was in intensive care. And I tell you, he did not look too good. There was blood pouring out of him. And I, that's when I got up on the bed and pulled him up and got myself in trouble with the nurses. <laughs> Get off of it! But that afternoon, I went home. And I, I'll never forget it. I went into our living room on my own. I'm not a Christian. I went into that living room, and I knew my dad's going to die. I can see that. It's pretty obvious. And I closed that door, and I don't ask me how I knew this scripture. I have no idea. But I knew, maybe from school or from... I knew there was a guy called Hezekiah who had pleaded his case before God and that God had heard him and answered with 15 years added to his life. I don't know where I got that. And I went into that room on my own. I shut the door. I got down on my knees, and I said, Now, God, as an unbeliever, remember, most of the people who got healed in Scripture were unbelievers. God listens to unbelievers and answers them. And I said, God, that man 
has faithfully prayed and led this family. That man has been an excellent example to me and to the whole household. Don't hold our sins against him. He will die. And I'm asking you to add the 15 years that you gave Hezekiah. Add those 15 years to my father's life. Amen. As an unbeliever, my father was 74 at that time. He didn't die till he was 94. God added 20 years. Pleading your case. David talks about it. He calls on God to do it. But in order to plead your case, you have to have a case to plead, right? And this is really the, the, the foundational nature that the Passover offering brings into our lives. Not just for yourself, but when you're praying for others like we will do tonight, when you're praying for your family. Abraham had no qualm. He had no qualm about telling God what he had done. God, I just did this and I just did that. And, and trying to, to, to pull God's favor into his life. And what did God do? He said, okay, come let us reason together. I'll listen to you. Come and plead your case. I'll listen to you. But in order to plead your case in anything that you're struggling with, fighting with in your life, I'm just saying, you need to have something to plead with. And that's one of the things, not the only thing, but it's one of the things that the Passover offering does for you if you establish it in your life. And it's one of the things the devil obviously wanted to take off us. Number five that's in Exodus chapter 23. It says that you will live a long life, that no one among us will miscarry, and no one among us will be barren. My God, praise the Lord for that. Good promise. A long and healthy life that no one will miscarry. And we did have a few miscarriages there actually a couple of years ago. I remember that. It was very serious. Do you remember that? Parveen. I, got a, I was in and out of the country. I got a phone call. Parveen has lost her child. And then I got another phone call. Oh, hey, did you hear Suyin lost her child? I, that's enough for me. Just shut down everything. And we started praying. I said, God, that's enough. Who's pregnant? Oh, Eileen. Eileen was pregnant. And we started. And I went to war in our house. And I said, God, no more deaths in our women. No more in this church. No more. That's enough. Satan, get out of this place. No one will miscarry. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed behind closed doors until I got a word. And God spoke to me. Eileen was about five months, six months pregnant. And God spoke to me like a tap on the shoulder. Go and tell Eileen that her child will be born safe, sound, healthy, and well. How's the Eileen? How's the <laughs> Very well. I'm just saying, you need to not only plead your own case, but you need to plead. When you see the devil get in, when you see the enemy creep into the camp, right, as cell leaders, as pastors, as disciples, go to work. Go to work. Go to war. You're going to have to have something to plead with. You're going to have to not only plead your own case, but plead for your people and see the devil scattered. God will release an angel. He will destroy your enemies. He will give you long life. He will open your womb. And no one will miscarry among us. Now, 
do you start to get the picture that something's important? You start to get the idea that God says, look, this is kind of important to me. Three times a year, you're going to come before me. One of this, we'll cover the other feasts at another time. But the principal one, the New Year's Day, if you like, is Passover. And on that day, you will bring in an offering like you've never done before. It will be an offering that costs you, an offering that hurts, because that's what it's like, you know. Be careful, folks, because in eight weeks' time, we're going to do that. And it scares me sometimes when I see some of your offerings. <laughs> hope I'm not getting too personal. But you scare me. You really do. Do you ever see someone who's lost their child, you know, say child gets killed in a public bus or something and it's a compensation case, you know? And the, the parents end up in court a year later and the judge is making the decision for compensation, you know? So the parents are called up to the bench and they stand there and the judge says, oh yes, it was a terrible accident and we understand the council are responsible, so we're going to compensate you and we're going to give you £1,250 for the death of your child. And in those situations, if the father is a right-thinking person, he was a judge, could I just have that check a second? Keep it. Keep it. I don't want it. Is, that what it. is is that what it means to you? Is that how cheap this is? And that's what Passover's about. It's about not tipping God like a waiter. It's coming to God like a king, the king that he is. And it's understanding he uses finance, not only finance, as I said, you can bring other things, but principally in our culture, it still remains finance. It's an offering, okay? And it needs to be an offering that represents the fact that we understand what's going on. We understand it cost him his son. And we bring something that reflects that. Number six, God will increase our inheritance here on the earth whilst we live. Remember, all these promises, you know, prosperity, healing, or whatever, these promises have got nothing to do with heaven. Amen. You don't need money when you get to heaven, do you? You don't need euros, right? You don't need healing when you get to heaven. So all the things you see in Scripture, they are concerning this life. They're concerning here and now for you, not the life to come. That's called rewards, right? This is our inheritance here on the earth with the saints who are alive. But you've got to enter into that. And that's going to involve you not just learning this by rote academically, friends, but that's going to involve you getting this ingested spiritually and it becoming part of this part of your life. And I spent hours this week going back over the... Oh, but Pastor Mike, you've done that. I know! I know! But I know that there's treasure here. I know that deep in this, in this Passover, I know that there is victory here. If I establish this properly in my life and in your lives that we can collectively see aggressive growth. Amen. Spiritual growth. It's a new spiritual year. That's what Passover is. But God will increase our inheritance in this earth. Probably one of the most shocking examples I have ever used ever was the one with Spurgeon. You know Spurgeon? 
Spurgeon's probably the most famous preacher of modern times for hundreds of years. And Spurgeon is in London, Westminster Chapel, and somebody says to him, there's a woman dying in a hut on a great estate out in the country, and she's asked that you come and see her. And Spurgeon says, yes, he will do it. And he goes down, and there's this vast country mansion, you know, worth a fortune. But the woman is a servant, and the mansion is shut. And he goes down, and he finds this lady dying in a little hovel. This is a true story. He goes into the hovel, and it's dark in there, and there's the woman on her deathbed. And he sits, and he's talking to her, and she's telling him her life story. I used to work for the Lord of the manor, but he died years ago. And she starts recounting, and over her head, there's a little picture, frame picture over her head. And he's listening to her, and he starts to read it. And it says, this is the last will and testament of Lord, whatever his name was. And he reads down, I leave everything I have, my estate, my lands, to this woman. And Spurgeon looks at her and looks at the will, looks at her and looks at the will. And he says, excuse me, madam, what's that on the wall? And she said, oh, that, the Lord gave me that before he died. And he takes it down and he says, do you know what this is? And she says, no, I can't read. <laughs> so I just put it on the wall. And the lady lived in poverty all her life, whilst on her wall she had the inheritance of all that was around her. And right now on your knee you've got a Bible, and in your hand you've got scriptures. But can you read them? Can you see them? Can you see them with spiritual eyes that appropriate them, that own them, and put them into practice, follow through with them, and see how your faith grows here? That's God's will for you. Victory, 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 victory. But we need to get to it His way. The last promise is that He would watch over the coming year. And that's priceless. It's a long time a year, amen? Now, you know why that picture, those of you who were here three years ago, you know why that picture is on the bottom there. See the picture of Jesus on the cross? You will remember that before I brought this message to you for the first time, I was determined to find the Passover offering that Jesus made because I couldn't find it. And I was at home, and I was disturbed by that because everything, Jesus got baptized, so you get baptized. Jesus had communion. We have communion. Everything is in Scripture. Uh, and Steve Munsey was saying, we need to celebrate Passover. And my problem is, I can't find Jesus. God forgive me for this, because it shows how blind you can actually be. But I was determined to find it. And I went into the church. I shut the shutters. And I just stayed in the kitchen with my Bible. And I said, Jesus, you didn't bring a Passover offering. Jesus, you, I can't find it. And I'm flicking my Bible. I'm flicking my Bible. And you've got to be patient. You've got to wait until revelation comes. God, I can't see it. I can't see it. And then, boom! It was Passover. It was Passover. And he said, I gave my life as an offering at Passover. And suddenly, your eyes are opened. And it's no longer an academic thing. Now it's actually a spiritual, living, passionate thing right? Concerning relationship, 
his love for you, his love for me. So what will you bring in eight weeks' time? I want you to think about that. And I want us to not just listen to about Israel and then move on, because what's the point in doing that? Not going anywhere. We need to put into practice the things that we've learned. You can say amen there. We need to put into practice the things that we're learning. That is the only way we're going to see growth. So get yourself ready for that. We'll talk about the Missions Fifth Pledge in a few weeks' time. We'll be taking that up also. Tonight, as Pastor Tom shared, we're going to pray for our loved ones. This congregation's not doing well in terms of salvation. You know, Freddie just baptized 12 members, not just 12 people who've gone, 12 people who are in his church who were not in his church nine months ago, you know. So there's an, an outbreak of salvation. People who are being discipled, I know. I was with them last week. Fantastic stuff. But there's not enough salvation here. Amen. Amen, folks. We need to see salvation in this house with your friends and your family. And a good place to start with that is tonight that you come with a, and ask God to give you names of people to pray for, right? Jeanette has four kids, four kids from her first marriage, seven kids from her second marriage, and 10 kids from, no, I'm only joking. She's only got four kids. <laughs> she has four, four kids, and the, the two girls are saved, the two boys are not saved. And I, we prayed about three months ago, we had a prayer meeting over in the church, and the mic was open. I don't know if you remember this, but I felt for Tom, you know, because every time I, Tom's, her son, the eldest son, he's not saved. And not just that he's not saved, he won't even let me mention God. He, he's one of those people, won't, you know, you start and he just shuts you down so quick, so fast. And I couldn't get a way into him, so I left it. In fact, we left it for several years, and it was kind of, it was hurting me. So I went forward in the prayer meeting not long ago, and I said this, God, would you give me a way? Give me a way in. Help me to get at him, to get into his heart some way. And about a week before Christmas, Tom rang up and he said, hey, things have changed here. Any chance I could come down for Christmas? Is that all right? I said, yeah, come. And we had him all on his own. <laughs> I tell you, we give him a hard time. I really, you know, never before have we actually been able to spell out the full gospel. And he sat in our kitchen listening intently, and we, we just got the seed, remember, right? You get that seed in. And I could see the, 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 the defenses slowly melting and the seed entering. And it, it was just like you saying, Okay, okay, I think I know what you're getting at here. I think I can maybe understand this a bit better. I'm delighted about that. I don't know whose prayer that was, actually. I don't know which one of you would have prayed that. Now, I prayed the public prayer. But I don't know which one of you's faith it was. Probably wasn't mine, because I know him too well. That's a prayer meeting, you see. Do you understand? That's why we have a prayer meeting. And some of you never pray because you never open your mouth. And prayer is only, the Greek word means to cry aloud. You said that, I know, and I'll say it again until you start opening your mouth. And some of you still never pray. You think, you meditate, you contemplate, you do all those things, 
but you don't pray. That's why you have a public prayer meeting, so that you can speak. Okay? That's the first reason. The second reason is that you may not have the faith. But when you're praying, someone in the crowd hears you and something comes alive, they've got the faith. Best example of this is Ben Eunice. All the time, people come up, but you don't know anything about it, you know? The prayer meeting's on, and the, or the prayer meeting will be over, and Ben will come up to me and say, who's that person there? I said, well, that's so-and-so. And what, did you hear their prayer? And I can see Ben's spirit. <laughs> He's got it, you see. The person was bringing a petition, but they didn't have it, but someone else did. So what I'm saying to you tonight, other people, that's why we have prayer meetings, come tonight and ask God to give you the names of people in your family tree, names of people in your apartment, names of your neighbors, your friends. And let's believe, and we can believe, right, with full assurance that God wants to save people. Amen. And He wants to use us to do it. But we're going to have to work together to do that, right? Very much together. So come, open your mouth, and let us hear you. Let us hear what the prayer is and watch God do His work. Tonight, 6.30. Get over the weather, right? And get out and join God's army. Amen. Amen. I'll just invite the worship team back. Stand to your feet one moment. And let's just commit ourselves between now and Passover for God to guide us and lead us in what we should do. God, it is no small thing to understand Passover to understand what you call us to be and to do. And I pray this morning that you will reveal to us, pull back the curtains of Scripture and let us see how important this was, that you made so many promises, so many promises that we would obey if we would only obey. And God, we remember the great sacrifice of the cross and we don't belittle it, with trite behavior or token offerings. But we bring you our praise this morning. We bring you our worship. And we also set our hearts and our minds like flint to be undeviating in celebrating these feasts that you have given all peoples who follow you. And we will begin in eight weeks' time with Passover. And God help us to do so.